Welcome back to another episode of Bossy, Brilliant, and Badass. I'm Lisa Lindsay with my co-host, Liz Green. Liz, how are you this week? Actually, really good, uh, Lisa. Thanks for asking. I'm just really anxious to get into this next episode. There's so much to cover. My friend Francesca Rossi is a therapist and an activist, and her story is going to blow you away. And we're going to first talk about her story. And in part two, we're going to talk about how we can protect ourselves and our businesses from online predators. Boy, you guys are not going to want to miss this one. Yeah, it's it's really great. My mouth was agape the whole time. But I want to make sure that everybody is aware that this episode contains depictions of intimate partner violence and domestic terrorism. That can be disturbing for some people. So if you do not want to be exposed to this content, go ahead and wait for part two, which will come out next Tuesday. Okay, when we come back, part one of our interview with Francesca Rossi. Bossy, Brilliant, and Badass is brought to you by Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it is the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. First of all, it's free, and we all know free is great. There's also a bunch of creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can also make money from the podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Francesca Rossi is a licensed clinical social worker who has been working in mental health for over 16 years. Her private practice, Thriving Through, specializes in providing therapeutic services for those who have experienced digital violence intimate partner violence, and complex trauma. And Thriving Through provides therapy, clinical case consultations, advocacy, workshops, and trainings. And Francesca has also been written up in several publications, has been a guest on the Dr. Oz Show, and she's a national public speaker. And today we're going to hear Francesca's unbelievable experience with intimate partner violence. And then Francesca is going to share with us some security measures we can all take to protect ourselves and our businesses from online assault, abuse, and stalking. So welcome, Francesca. I'm so excited to have you finally on the show. Thanks, Liz. I'm really happy to be here. So um, Francesca and I, I don't know if you know this, Lisa, but Francesca and I met at a five-day psychodrama training retreat. And we'll, we'll put the definition of psychodrama in the show notes. But um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a whole, whole episode. Other, that's a whole other <laughs> subject and topic. Um, yeah, those five yeah. days scare me. <laughs> right. None of us are big fans of that word, but it's it's a it's an amazing modality. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. I was trying, Francesca, the other day to rem- like I tried to remember how we actually started talking and how we like hit it off and yeah. became friends. And then I kind of remember a situation where where we were talking. You know, we're both vegan, and we were kind of navigating around these these vegan dishes at the retreat mm-hmm, and both mm-hmm. of us you know wanted to try this vegan tiki masala dish I think it was and so as, uh-huh. as we were eating it do you remember this we're eating it we thought it was so yeah. delicious and then all of a sudden I thought wait a second I, Francesca I think there's cream in this and you're you're <laughs> And you said, well, no, I doubt, you know, it's supposed to be vegan. So I said, and I thought I was just being all paranoid. And I said, well, why don't mm-hmm. we call the catering service? And so yep, you called. And, called them. and then what, what did they say? And we, thank goodness we'd only taken like literally like a few bites for both of us before we were both like, this is like, this doesn't taste this tastes, right. This tastes way too know. good. <laughs> <laughs> this is and I got really vegan. bugged. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. That's exactly what we were connecting over was our, was our food, our food affinities. <laughs> and cause we were both eating nuts like squirrels the whole time <laughs> right. as we're like powering through these days. Um, and we were both just like, you know, chomping down on almonds all during the day. Yeah. Yeah. We were sharing <laughs> our specialty nut selection. <laughs> but then I remember we found out that actually there was 
full dairy in that dish. So we're like, uh oh, mm-hmm. uh oh, <laughs> like, are we going to be able yeah. to participate for the rest? A little of the dairy day? doesn't hurt anybody, just a little bit. No, well, after several oh years gosh. not eating it, <laughs> then yes, it does. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have a, I have a really bad allergy. That's why I think I had said to you, I was like, I have to call. Like we can't be, I'm like, we got to call. Like, I don't know what to yeah, do. Yeah. You're like, I'm going to break out and hide. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. My, I like, will, I will like violently throw up and I was like getting all nervous in my head. I'm like, but we still have like four hours of cycle. Like, I can't get sick. <laughs> yeah, four hours. <laughs> There's only like two bathrooms here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like on the yeah. first day. <laughs> yes, oh my yes. gosh oh my gosh but you know yeah, that was a good bonding yeah that was, that was a good bonding but um but then towards the end of the workshop I heard your story and yeah. I uh it was really one of the most unbelievable stories I'd ever heard in my life and literally my jaw dropped and um so I'm really looking forward to hearing it again today and have Lisa hear it in our audience as well. So before we get into your personal story, let's talk a little bit about sort of what inspired you to become a therapist in the first place. So I have wanted to be um, a social worker since I was 14. And I had, was very lucky in that I had an experience of working with a licensed clinical social worker when I was, you know, a youth. And it helped me to make some changes in my life that directly um, impacted the trajectory of it. And later on, I was like, huh, I was like, what do you do? And she was like, oh, I'm a licensed clinical social worker. And I was like, that's what I want to be when I grow up. Like, I want to I want to do what you did because wow. you had a major impact on changing the whole course of what was going on in my life. And uh, yeah, so I've been wanting to be a social worker since I was 14 and I've been doing it, you know, as soon as I could, as soon as I turned 18, I was like, okay, I'm ready. And so (laughs) I've been working, yeah, I've been working with people. I've been working in mental health. I've worked um, in housing. I've worked in California and in New York and I've been you know, doing lots of different things, really doing a lot of mental health treatment and substance abuse treatment. And about a couple months ago, I opened my own private practice. And it's interesting because when I had met Liz, um, I think that was July of last year, I actually met you at a really um, difficult stage in my life. And I was in a major transition. And it was right after I had... um, I had quit my job. I had been a director of a nonprofit for seven years and I had quit and I had gone in the psychodrama retreat. And so I was going through all of these professional and personal crises when you and I met. So it's really nice now to be on the show and to be like, oh, wow, we're like, you know, almost a year out and to see how things have changed. And it's a continued reminder that like when we're in crisis and when we're in periods of our lives that are unstable, that things will always get better and that we meet the right people to help us guide our way through when we need to. Right, right, right. Well, absolutely 100%. And so now that's a good lead in, I think, for you to share with us. What, so what happened? Can you bring us right to the very beginning? Sure. So I want to, to bring us to the beginning, I want to also just start at the end because they both, they both coincide with each other. And so yeah, I, uh, I'm a survivor of um, intimate partner violence. And one of the ways that my abuser um, had hurt me was through technology. And when he was doing this, and when he was abusing me, I actually didn't even realize that it was my partner that was doing it to me, um, which is really scary. And so my abuse started off in ways that I didn't understand because many times with intimate partner violence, you don't realize that you're entering into a domestic abusive situation because of the ways that abusers will use different tactics with you. And so my story started with intimate partner violence and then actually ended with domestic terrorism. Um, (laughs) To put it lightly. I'm not expecting that, but continue. <laughs> yeah, well, because the, the what's important for, that I want always want to highlight in like um, the advocacy that I do is that when we see episodes of domestic terrorism, we always root it back to violence against women. Right. And so mm-hmm. when we see these cases on TV or when we look at anything that's been sensationalized over the last year in terms of any episodes of domestic terrorism, if we look back and dig in, 
we will find a woman that has been abused. And this is the case with what happened in Parkland um, for the mass shooting um, that happened with 17 people being murdered. Um, that guy that did that, he had actually been stalking a classmate, a female classmate, and then he had actually been physically abusing another female classmate um, before he ended up murdering 17 people in his high school. Oh, wow. um, we also see this in Charlottesville, um, and the man um, who had murdered Heather Heyer, um, where he had driven his car into a crowd to protest the Nazis. Uh, well, <laughs> they drove his car into a crowd of protesters who were protesting the Nazi rally. He was a Nazi. Um, he had been abusing his mom for years. And so anytime that you like uncover what's actually going on, you will find an episode of one woman and one woman's story of violence. And, and unfortunately, my own story highlights that because while I was actually being abused, I had tried to get help try to get help over and over and over again, but a singular story of violence by a woman, people don't take seriously. Right. And oh. my abuse was not legitimized until the entire nation was terrorized, wow. which is really horrific. And that's one of the things that I really tried to, to do in the work that I'm doing now is that advocacy of, we need to believe survivors. We need to believe women mm -hmm. when they tell us of their abuse yep. and we need to not second guess them or or victim blame them. And one of the ways, like I had said, was abused was through technology. And when people learn that, they're always like, what? Like, it's just online or it's cyber abuse. And we really want to stop the stigma that exists around violence that occurs on the internet because that never just stays online. Like my abuse was not just through the computer. And when people are being abused by technology, there's nothing virtual about their suffering. Right. So everything that they experience is happening in real life. But people, you know, people around you, your friends, your families, and definitely the police state, they diminish violence when they learn that technology is facilitating it. And so, right. right. Yeah. Wow. And you know so much about this, Francesca. And so take us back to, say, when you first started experiencing this and you were confused. Yeah. Take us there. Sure. So, so um, you know, I always want to put the plug out there that I met my abuser online, through online dating site, because mm -hmm. that always sets the stage. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, so, you know, um, one of the ways when I, you know, to start to talk about it is like, I like to talk about yellow flags and I like to talk about it and like how I experienced it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and so you know, intimate partner violence will start off so slow that people don't realize that it's happening. And many times we will hear rhetoric from other people that's like, oh, what were the red flags that happened? Like, you must have known that things were wrong. And usually there aren't red flags. What happens is that there are yellow flags. And so yellow flags are these like yield signs that's happening in your intuition that's bubbling up and saying like, hey, there's something wrong here, but it's not big enough for me to do anything about. And I'm already becoming invested. No, and if you're starting a relationship with a person who is an abuser, they are probably doing tactics like oversharing and love bombing you, which is creating a faster paced intimacy. And that's what right. happened with me. Um, I was getting love bombed. So what was your first yellow flag? Yeah, my first yellow flag was that within, uh, within like three weeks of us dating, I had gotten flowers sent to my workplace. Mm -mm. And this really, really uh, made me upset. And I was like, I, you know, my, the guy I was dating at the time, um, whose name is Juan, he had sent me flowers. I work, I was a director of a nonprofit and I worked directly with, um, with clients. And so this created like a whole big thing at work. Like my clients saw me getting flowers and then it became this whole like spectacle. Like, oh, Francesca has flowers. Who's sending her flowers? Like it drew attention to me that I don't like to do because I don't like to share my personal life at work. Yeah. And so I was also, so I was upset and I said to him, I'm like, I don't know why you sent me flowers. And also, I don't know how you knew where I worked. Like, I didn't tell you where I worked. I didn't tell you the name of where I worked and the address um, because I've always kept my professional life very, very close um, and not shared it with people Francesca, because I'm very protective. Yeah. I'm sorry. My mouth is agape. What <laughs> are you saying? You never told me where you worked. Yeah. So I didn't tell him where I worked. And he was like, and this is where the gaslighting started. And he was like, yes, you did. You told me you worked at 
you know, da da da. And I was like, no, I didn't. And he's like, yeah, you did. And I'm like, oh, well, maybe I did. And that was the first, that was the beginning of the gaslighting right there. And of course, so this like, was right at the beginning of your relationship, a yeah. couple of, a couple of weeks in. It's like three weeks in, yeah. And so, and then I second guess myself and that's the problem with it. That's the piece about psychological abuse is that it really starts off so slow you don't even realize that it's it's happening to you. And so this is the moment that now I reflect on, I'm like, fuck, I, I knew I didn't tell him that. But, and I was internally being like, there's something wrong here, but then I'm getting all of this other feedback from other people that are like, hey, how nice is it that a man sent you flowers? I was just to gonna work? ask you the same question because yes. here yeah. you are, you're upset about a thing that supposedly is a nice thing that someone has done for you, but you're upset. Yeah, yeah, and it's just dripping in patriarchal violence. Like, I don't need to have flowers sent to me. Like, that doesn't make me actually feel good at all. And it didn't then. And I knew, now I know why it didn't then is because he was actually using that type of, again, it's a tactic, it's called love bombing. He was using these tactics to try to get me to let my guard down and try to create a faster paced intimacy. Right. It also, right. again, this gaslighting is so insidious because I'm like, no, I didn't tell you where I work. He's like, yes, you did. And he's like, but weren't the flowers beautiful? Right. Like, right. but weren't they so right. nice? And right. then I'm just like, well, yeah. You have to shift out of your anger, right? You have to exactly. shift out of your upset. Yep. And that's a part of the psychological, that's like the, you know, gaslighting is the infrastructure for emotional violence. Yeah. And so it started immediately. And that's, then these things kept happening. And in the same type of vein where I was like, I don't remember saying that to you. And he's like, Oh yeah, you told me this and da da da. Come to find out he'd actually had hacked into my accounts. He had been reading my emails. He'd been reading my text messages. He'd been reading through my personal diary. He'd pretty much been reading my inner monologue for like as much of information he could get. And I had no idea. And so he would say things to me that I would remember not telling him. And then he would say, no, you did tell me. And so how was he able to get your passwords and whatnot? Yeah, so that I'm, you know, it's the same. It's actually a part of the security thing that, or the security that I do with my clients and that I try to share with my communities is that, you know, you really have to be protective of your passwords because I didn't share them with them. I have always been very paranoid of men and don't trust them. And that was occurring before I was dating um, Juan. And so I had never given him passwords to anything. He didn't have passwords to any of my accounts. I didn't share literally anything with him, but I did to him what a lot of us are guilty of doing, which is type your password in front of people. Yeah. Right. 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 So like, you don't think that the man who's sleeping next to you, the person that you're falling in love with, you don't think that they're looking over your shoulder to try to gain access to your banking or to try to gain access to your email, right? Cause you're already trusting them. So why would you hide what right. you're typing in when you're just sitting next to each other? Right, so right. I actually don't know how he gained access to my information, but this is the only way that I've been able to like now going back and being like all my own investigative work of like, you know, cause we do all the self blame as women, right? Like, what did I do? Right. What did I do? Right, how right, did he right. do this? But like, I didn't do anything wrong. He was no. an abuser. So, right. Did more stuff, other things happen? Do you have other examples of other things that kept happening? So this is a part of the psychological abuse I was experiencing is that when we had first started dating, all of a sudden, these ex-boyfriends that I had started showing up in my life. And so I am dating Juan and we had been, you know, happily dating and, you know, I'm falling in love with him, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden he starts telling me, hey, I ran into so-and-so who is like one of my ex-boyfriends. And I'm like, well, that's weird. Like, how did you run into this person? And these unusual occurrences kept happening. And he would say, yeah, you told me about this guy you went on a date with. I ran into him here. And I'm like, well, well, I don't know. I don't get it. Like, for example, he came home one day and he was like, oh, I was at the Verizon store and getting my phone fixed. And the guy at the Verizon counter saw a picture of you and me on my phone and said that you and him had dated. And I was <sighs> like, what? Like, I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, yeah, like, you know, remember, you know, whatever his name is, he, yeah, he saw your picture and he was like, oh, I dated her. And he was right. I had gone on a few dates with a guy that worked at a Verizon store like 10 years ago. And I had never told him about this. And I was like, but how did you know that? And he's like, oh, you told me about when you went on dates with that guy. And so he kept 
bullshit. The, the gaslighting methods <laughs> kept happening. Yeah. So that, and honestly, that's one example, but he did that to me. I mean, he did that to me. He started doing that to me right when we first started dating. And again, it's getting me to second guess myself. This is the tactic of abuse, right? So I'm second guessing myself. So the gaslighting is really setting in. Cause I'm like, I didn't tell you. And he's like, yes, you did. And then like another time. So I, I started to get stalked actually by all these men that I had dated in my past, like literally every single man. I mean, like over a dozen men that I had dated started stalking me. And that so must have I, felt so incredibly like confusing. All of a sudden you're so being confusing. stalked by like 12 ex-boyfriends. Yeah. So I got when, the same and this time. is, yeah, all this same time. So it started off, it was actually, it's just so crazy because now we're in May. And so this really, this really started in like April of like 2016. And so, yeah, the first thing, and this is about the, the inter- wovenness of digital into intimate partner violence because you know him and I were living together and all of a sudden my um you know I didn't have a digital presence also like I don't really have a big online presence and so my best friend had called me um being very upset and she was like there is a picture of you know your ex-boyfriend on Facebook and his cover picture is a naked picture of you <gasps> So, and I hadn't dated this guy in like a really long time. I also don't even remember ever sending him this photo of me. And so I get really upset, obviously, because I'm like, oh my gosh, I, at the time I, I was like, I'm being revenge porned. Although I don't like that term and don't use that term because the term is non-consensual photography. But at the time I thought I was being revenge porned and was really upset. And I was turning to my my boyfriend, Juan, who I was living with. And I was like, can you believe that? I'm getting, this guy is putting up naked pictures of me on Facebook. Like, this is crazy. And he's like, oh my gosh, this is so crazy. And so that was the beginning of that. And so I went to a lawyer, actually, I went to Carrie Goldberg and she, you know, started to work with me to try to help me understand this. But yeah, so my first introduction um, to the legal system was through the non-consensual photography. And then I pretty much experienced every time of every type of digital violence that exists, I experienced through Juan abusing me. And so he used all the methods to try to, to hurt me. And so after this, after the revenge porn, the non-consensual photography, he started to email spoof me and pretend and stalk me as ex-boyfriends. And then actually like stalked me as my ex-boyfriends, partners and so and i was dating him still and i started to really like i thought i was losing my mind right nothing well you sense. would i'm like you would you i was would think that i was losing, losing my mind. mind and i kept going to him for comfort this is the whole part of the emotional abuse so right. i started to have another boyfriend started stalking me through my emails another boyfriend started stalking me through my text i even did a police report against an, another ex-boyfriend who was harassing me but it was all Juan. But I was getting so scared because I get, I mean, I'm not kidding. It was like, I think it was like 20 men. It was every single man I had ever dated wanted Jeez. impersonated and stalked me as. Okay, pause. And I so, did, so pause. okay, yeah. So yeah. pause for a minute. <laughs> okay, pause for a minute. That yeah. was a lot. And I just want to make sure I heard you correctly. <laughs> I really just want to make sure I heard you correctly. Because because I just want to make sure our audience heard that correctly. <laughs> that yeah. these 12 men ex-boyfriends that all of yeah, a sudden started stalking I think it's you. more than 12. I can't remember. Yeah. Okay. But 12 <laughs> is a heck of a lot. Yeah. <laughs> all of a sudden started stalking yeah. you. Were only this one person that you were actually dating, that you were actually sleeping in a bed with every night, pretending to be all these guys harassing you on a daily basis. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> wow, Francesca. So tell us how you actually found out that it was your boyfriend, Juan. Sure, sure. So, so the backdrop is that for our, uh, you know, for about like, gosh, April, May, June. So about like four months continuously, I was being stalked by every man I had ever dated. And the stalking was coming in forms of text. It was coming in forms of email messages and then in forms of the non-consensual photography. And it was happening all the time. It was happening like, you know, like weekly. And I kept going to Juan, who I was living with and, you know, for emotional comfort, because a part of this is that it's so crazy that I kept telling my friends and everyone was like, none of that makes sense. 
And so I stopped telling people what was going on because it was so fucking bonkers, right? Like to keep saying, oh, this guy I went on two dates with four years ago has been texting me and, t- and stalking me and telling me he's outside my apartment. Like nothing was making sense. And so the only person that I was confiding in at this time was my partner because he was the only one that would provide me emotional support during it. And he would reflect back to me, oh, all these men you dated were awful. Isn't it good that you're with me now? Wow. And I would be like, oh my gosh, you're right. It is really good that I'm with you because you would never do this to me. So during this time, things started to get, you know, really dark in my head and they started to, you know, this was escalating. And so all of a sudden in July, in my email, I got a lawsuit and the lawsuit was uh, suing me for for allegedly spreading a sexually transmitted infection to my ex-boyfriend's current wife. What? And so she was suing me and my ex-boyfriend, her husband, for giving her an STI. Wait, this is a real lawsuit? No. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I think I no, jumped ahead. But <gasps> no, no, not at all. Because this is the point is that I thought it was real because it, you know, if you get a lawsuit, you're going to be like, what else do you think? Right. But it's crazy because at the time, you know, I'm, I had worked with people who have mental health issues and I had worked with people with severe mental illness. And so I'd actually been sued before by my clients. So I got the lawsuit and I actually knew, I was like, this isn't a real lawsuit. Like Mm. I know what a lawsuit looks like. Like it looked, it looked real, but you don't get served lawsuits in your email, which I know that that's not legal, but regardless, I still had gotten this lawsuit with this horrendous allegation. And so I was through the roof. Like I, this was like the, this was the beginning of the end, which is a good thing. So I went back to Carrie Goldberg. I was hysterical. I was like, I'm being sued by this guy, by this guy's wife. I didn't give him an STI. Like what is going on? And so Carrie started to dig and to uncover where the lawsuit came from. So she called the lawyer who apparently came from the lawyer in California was like, I don't know who your client is. And I have no idea who these people are that say that they're suing her. They are not my clients. And so then Carrie contacted the, my ex and his wife to be like, you know, to threaten them pretty much to be like, you can't sue my client. And they were like, we don't know what you're talking about. We haven't sent her a lawsuit, but she's stalking us Mm. and she's actually been coming after us. And I was like, oh my gosh, Carrie, like, that's not true. And so Carrie was like, Francesca, like you have someone, there, there, there is someone that is trying to get you. Someone out here is really trying to hurt you. And we have to figure out who it is. And so during this time, I had started to actually pull away from Juan, from my boyfriend, because I was just starting to like really not trust him because everything was just so weird. And I was just like, I don't trust this guy. And my friends were like, what if it's Juan? And I'm like, I need proof. I need proof that it's Juan. And then finally they were able to uncover that the person that had authored the lawsuit was my boyfriend because oh my they gosh. were able to open up the document and find like the, the author of the it. Metadata. And he had, yeah, the, yeah, exactly. And they found that Juan Thompson had written it, but they didn't know when they found, so when my lawyer found out that it was Juan Thompson, they didn't know that that was my boyfriend's. And so, Oh, so what, so what happened that day when you found out, can you, can you tell us about that? Yeah. So my lawyer, I was at, I was at work. And so the backdrop is that at the time, you know, I'm, I'm the clinical director of a permanent supportive housing complex that um, houses 325 people that are formerly homeless. And so my work was crisis driven. It was a very intense job. And so I'm at work and my lawyer calls me and they're like, call me back from a landline right now. Like, don't talk on your phone. And so I call them back from like the landline at work and I'm like, what is going on? And they were like, come into our office. Don't tell anyone where you're going. Don't text, don't share anything and come directly here right now. And I was I was livid, I was petrified, and I was pleading. I was like, you have to tell me what is going on. I can't just leave work right now. And my lawyer was like, you have to come here right now. We can't tell you anything else. And, uh, you know, this is like the scary, you know, it's like the scariest moment. I'm just like, oh my gosh, like what, wow. what, what is the, what information am I going to learn? And so right. I went to my lawyer's office and as I walked in, their conference room was actually all glass at the time. And so as I walked in, I could see pictures of my boyfriend all spread along the table because 
he had been a reporter for The Intercept. Oh. And so there's date, I mean, and he used to have his own TV show through Brick. Like he had been, he had been like a journalist. And so he had a name for himself. And so he, there was content about him everywhere. He, you know, subsequently he had actually been fired from The Intercept because he had plagiarized and made up fake content. So side note, but so I walked into the conference room and I saw all of his pictures and I just, I, you know, I didn't know what they were going to tell me, but like inherently I intuitively know. And they sat me down and they were like, do you know who Juan Thompson is? He's the one that um, authored the lawsuit. And we think he's the one that sent you the image based, um, you know, the image based abuse. And we think he's the one that's been stalking you. And I was like, he's my boyfriend and he's at home in my apartment right now. Oh my gosh. Ooh, oh my goodness. Oh yeah. my God. Yeah. So they had no idea at the time. Like, so it's just so funny, like to think simultaneously now, I mean, it's good to actually talk about this because again, this was like the scariest moment of my life. I mean, and this was also like the biggest turning point because I was actually able to be like, okay, so now I know that I wasn't losing my mind. Now I know that not every man I had ever dated was coming after me. And it was at actually just one man that was trying to abuse me the whole time and he was successful in abusing me <laughs> so it sounds like it's a kind of a cross between you know uh relief in a way but then also um what else did you feel yeah i mean it was terrifying because i immediately you know my clinical self like i just felt so compartmentalized the whole time because my you know my my clinical mind was like if you're dating someone who had the propensity to stalk you for your relationship, then he is very dangerous. And yeah. this means that he will continue to hurt you. Like I understand domestic violence. I'm just like, oh my gosh, like if this guy's been doing this, like what else is he capable of? Like, he's just gonna get worse. And so right. I under, it was like, I felt like I was like in like, you know, like time and space stopped because I was able to understand intellectually, this is a very dangerous situation. My heart was, like breaking because I'm like oh my gosh this is a man that I had fallen in love with we had dated at this point for like you know a year and a half two years I forget like two years 18 months or something I think 18 months we dated and we'd been living together you know we'd been building this life together and so my heart is just breaking like oh my gosh like this person that I had you know wanted to share all this with and then also the third dimension is like what the fuck is wrong with me like I'm a clinician how did I not know and see that the man that I slept next Stu was the one that was hurting me this whole time. Like, how mm. did I not see these flags? Like mm. the blame was mm. so, 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 so high. And it was really, you know, and now I'm out of it, but like, it was a really hard thing for me to cope with in terms of like, how did I not see all this going on? I'm a clinician. I, I should understand this stuff. Like I help women who have domestic violence histories. How did I not get it? And the reality is that that's the point of intimate partner violence is that again, it starts off so slow. You don't realize it's happening. And so by the time all this stuff was going on, a, I had no idea I was being abused and B, I didn't understand how technology could facilitate abuse. Like I had right. no idea about email spoofing. I had no idea about the metadata or privacy. Like I, if someone, I just wish that someone had said to me at one point, Francesca, you're being stalked by all this men. Did you check the email address to, to check it against your previous email address? Because that's the way he was stalking me. And I just didn't know to look there. Right. Like, and I had no idea. And it's actually so plain as day because he would like, for example, say like, you know, say my boyfriend's name was like, john doe and their email address was john john doe one at at aol he would take that and and make it john doe l at aol uh, so if you looked at it real quick the l would look like a one right but once you actually look at them side by side he had been spoofing people's email addresses and i didn't even know that that was a tactic and so that's one of the things that i work on now with my clients and just like try to create advocacy around in my community is like Hey, like if you see something, if you feel something's wrong, like A, it probably is. B, let's go back and look at your emails. Let's look at your texts. Let's look at who they're really coming from. Because I didn't, I thought that all of the men that were stalking me were, I thought that they were actually the men who I had dated because their email addresses look so similar and their tones were the same tones of how I had dated them because Juan was mirroring everything from them because he had already had access to all of my accounts. Right. So he was impersonating them with 
with their inflections, the way they would write. And he was literally, you know, taking their email address and just like changing one letter or one number so that at a glance it looked the same. And I, I just didn't know how technology could be weaponized. And, mm-hmm. you know, and then after we broke up, I mean, after I found out he was my abuser, you know, I broke up with him and then he escalated every day until he, he was arrested by the FBI nine months later. So his abuse, like I knew that it would, got worse. And so the the ways that he hurt me, you know, after we broke up got, I mean, it literally escalated within like eight hours. I broke up with him and the next day he called my boss and tried to get me fired. And just, he escalated literally every single day. And so the, yeah, the the technology piece is major, which is why I have now recentered my my whole professional career to try to help people understand how technology is an apparatus of abuse because it's such it's such a beautiful way for abusers to to hurt people because of the ways that it provides masks and a way that it veils um on the internet right right so francesca what actually happened um like how did the fbi finally finally start helping you and hone in and and arrest Juan. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the, the part that I want to highlight is like, A, the police state doesn't care about women. B, law enforcement does not care at all about technology being weaponized against people. And so they don't understand when something is a cyber crime. And a lot of the ways that we think that they're supposed to is because of like how media presents it or like these shows on TV, like, you know, these crime shows are like, oh my gosh, like, of course they just IP address and understand who's doing this. But like the police don't care. Like I went to the cops, I went to the police like over 20 times asking them for help being like, this is what's happening. This is what's escalating. And they didn't do anything to help me because they that is unbelievable. As when I pertains. hear it, that's not unbelievable. It's not, but though. <laughs> it's not though. Yeah, it's not. And like, you know, it's, it's, it's not because they don't care. Like I actually had an officer tell me verbatim. He says, it sounds like he's escalating. And so, so it probably will. And then we can help you. And I was like, oh, after you find my dead yeah. body, then you'll help. You'll die he was first. Like, you don't have to be like that. Yeah. And yeah. And, and this is what happens with women and domestic violence is that like the police state doesn't do anything. So my story is just like a reminder of all of this stuff. But the, the shitty part is that he was using technology for in all of these ways to hurt me. So he was, he was stalking me. He was menacing me. He was harassing me. He was intimidating me. He went after 47 people in my life. He went after my job. He went after my friends. He went after all the men that he impersonated. He went after them too. He went after my family. He went after, he tried to get me my license of to be a clinical social worker in the state of New York. He tried to get that taken away from me because he did disparage, he did reports to them of disparaging stuff. I mean, he created fake content about me. He, you know, developed websites about me and post them and then sent them to people. He faked his own death at one point. He literally conned a journalist in St. Louis to write an article about him getting shot that wasn't true because wow. he was so hell-bent and then he did and then he pretended that he had been in the hospital and been in a coma and so I was going through all of this really crazy shit and and, and during this time he was also starting to dox me and swap me so, so doxing is when someone posts all of your personally identifiable information on the internet and so wow 8chan isn't isn't on anymore because they actually turned it unless it, it's back on, but it, they had turned it off actually, which is good recently. But um, it, on 8chan, he put my picture, he put my address, he put my home address, put my work address, he put all of my phone numbers and like encouraged people on 8chan to go after me. So I started, you know, having my abuse crowdsourced by other people, by other abusers on the internet. And then he swatted me. And so swatting is when someone makes a false threat to police mm-hmm. that warrants a SWAT team, you know, quote unquote. So like, you know, a lot of military style police. And so I was SWATed, I think like eight times um, and they still wouldn't find him or arrest him. And Ugh. so he, um, he sent a report that I was going to blow up the precinct. So the police started coming and investigating me. So I had police show up at my house. I had police show up at my job um, thinking that I was, there was one time um, he had made an allegation that I um, had planted bombs he made another allegation. Well, that's later, actually. He made an allegation that I had an arsenal of weapons and was going to shoot up the precinct in Brooklyn. So he made another allegation that I was going to shoot the chief of police in New York City. 
um, he made another allegation that I had possessed child pornography. So I was getting investigated by all of these different, all of these different departments, right? Wow. So like the missing, murdered and trafficked had gotten a report stating that I possess a child pornography. So I was, you know, investigated for possessing child pornography. I was investigated by the intelligence division who investigates terrorism. I was, the ATF came to my house and talked to my landlord because I got a report that I was selling guns out of my apartment. Uh. And, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky because he was trying to, you know, I'm very lucky because I was not injured, but if I was, you know, if I did not look like how I look, I mean, I probably would have gotten a lot of a different response from the police state. Like I am a white woman, so I show up with a lot of privilege, but you know, he was using the police state to hurt me and thank goodness I was not murdered by them, but that's what he was trying to do. And so he was escalating. And every time I would be swatted, I would tell the police, I was like, Juan Thompson is doing this. Juan Thompson is doing this. Like, this is what's happening. And they were like, okay, but we can't find him. And I was like, y'all don't give a fuck. Like, you don't care. You don't care about what I'm going through, like whatever. Right. And I was, you know, I'd been dealing with this abuse now for literally like almost a year. And then one day the FBI showed up at my grandma. My grandmother was 92 at the time. The FBI showed up at her part at her house and, and looking for me. And they, they came to my apartment, they got routed to my apartment and I was like so despondent. I mean, I was so depressed. I was in such a bad mental state and I had called my best friend to come here. And so her and I were sitting here and I was just like so angry with it, with the FBI. I was like, this is Juan Thompson. Like, you know, if you want to arrest me, like whatever, by this point I'd already had like multiple safety plans. Like I'd planted my evidence around so that when I was murdered, that someone would know that it was Juan. Like I had a safety plan with my lawyer so that when I was arrested, that she would know what to do to get me out. Like I thank goodness was not arrested, but it was growing closer and closer. And it was really surprising that I hadn't been arrested because of the severity of the swatting. And so the FBI showed up because I had been implicated in bomb threats. And this was during February and March of 2017, right after Trump was elected. And there was that wave of anti-Semitism across the country. And so there had been, you know, hundreds of bomb threats against Jewish community centers. And so Juan jumped on that and he made 12 bomb threats in my name across eight different states to frame me, to get me arrested. Oh my gosh. So that's how the FBI finally, you know, and they showed up and I was so angry and I was like, whatever. I'm like, he's escalating. And the FBI was like following him on Twitter. And they're like, yeah, he's like escalating right now. He's saying all this stuff about you. And he, I'm like, yeah, he's been stalking me every day, multiple times a day. I'm like, I have been getting stalked. Like this is an intimate partner violence problem. Like this is, this, <laughs> this has really been going on. No one has given a fuck. Like I've asked you guys for help. Like no one cares. And I gave them my, my evidence file and my timeline. And I had, I think it was 31 pages, like single spaced. I had been chronicling every episode of abuse I had experienced from him because this is like one of the things that survivors can do. And that I do with my clients is like create an evidence uh, tracking log or a, you know, or a timeline of incidents where you're able to document all the things that are going on, especially if it's tech facilitated, because uh, you can get so much abuse in the matter of like five minutes you could be bombarded with a thousand different ways that you're being abused like within just five minutes so the tracking log is really important so when the fbi showed up i handed them a copy because i'd had so many copies at this point because i had them planted everywhere because i was worried i mean i was being prepared to be murdered um because that's where it was leading and so i handed them my evidence log and then they arrested him three days later and they wow yeah, so they arrested him for cyber stalking and hoax bomb threats. And so oh. he's serving, um, yeah, he's serving a 60-month um, a sentence. And the judge had actually sentenced him to higher um, than he had pled guilty to, which was a really big win for us as survivors of domestic violence and those that experience um, quote-unquote cyber crimes, that the judge actually um, understood the severity of what had happened and sentenced him to higher um, than he had pled guilty to. Wow. Thank God. How did you feel when he finally got arrested, Francesca? Oh my gosh. I mean, and like I literally, it was, I'll never, yeah, I was amazed. Well, it was funny because I couldn't, 
I was like hiding out because the, the media just like, I mean, and there's like a whole element of trauma with the media, which is something that I also do with my clients because like the media just can sensationalize your trauma so much. And so, um, I was, when he was, I had no idea he was going to be arrested and I was actually at work dealing with an, oh my gosh, <laughs> I was dealing with an HR our nightmare at work and like I think I was like dealing with my I was with my human resources manager and a staff that I was managing and there was like a crisis going on and my lawyer was texting me and she was like one got arrested like and I couldn't I was like doing something and I couldn't step out and so I was like learning that my abuser was getting arrested while I was like you know still working and like couldn't respond to it and I like ran out of my building because I was like worried about the media and like right after I left my job like oh my gosh like 10 reporters showed up and so the whole day when he was arrested I spent the whole day with my best friend roaming around Manhattan like ducking from the media because the media went to oh my gosh news reporters are fucking poor they're such such ugh, they're horrible they came to my house they went to my grandmother's house they went to my mom's house in Connecticut they went to my job and there was like dozens of reporters camped out at all of like my quote unquote, like, you know, all of my places that are my homes to try to get to me and try to take pictures of me and to try to get my interview. And so me and my best friend just like, just, you know, we just hopped around Manhattan, just like roaming around, just like reading the news. Like we went into multiple bars and it was like everywhere when it, when he was arrested because they had been wow. um, looking for the person that had been doing the bomb threats. And so when they, when he was arrested, it was just so sensationalized. I mean, oh my gosh, there's like hundreds of articles written about this shit online. So I was like watching my own abuse, like unfold, like sitting like in a bar with my best friend, just like laughing, like, oh my gosh, what is my life right now? <laughs> Wow. Wow. Unreal. So crazy. Yeah, like talk about depersonalization and derealization. Like I really like it was it's still such an unreal experience and it's so nice. It's just like really refreshing now to talk about it because I'm really I'm on the other side of it. But like yeah. this is so traumatic. Like, you know, I don't wanna So and that's why I'm now working with people. Right. So so when you say being on the other side of it, how now it's been a, it's a couple of years later how how does it feel for you francesca with with the whole pandemic situation and how you know technology is is kind of our savior these days what yeah what have you yeah, found I mean, that that brings not. up for you or or the, or the clients that you've been working with yeah so you know we're all all now um, with living in quarantine and being uh, living through this pandemic, hopefully we all are able to live through it. We are all moving our lives online. And, you know, there is a lot of talk from people and from the media about like how great technology is and how amazing it is for us to connect with each other through this way. But if you have, like me, been impacted by digital violence, it's actually really scary to be moving your whole life online because we've been trying to escape the internet. Like we've been trying to escape our phones and trying to escape our devices. And so now that our only way to connect with others is through technology, it is incredibly triggering for people that have experienced these types of abuses. Yeah. So like, you know, the, the, it's really hard for me because people keep saying, Oh, technology is so great and all this stuff. And I'm just like, no, it's not. It's actually really really troubling and it can feel like you're trapped in prison because you don't have an option on other ways to connect than through the apparatus of what was used to abuse you like i don't have an option to be able to talk with other people and see them unless i want to get on a video call and that can be really difficult for me especially because i'm on video session all day long with my clients so i'm already you know being okay Okay with doing that and doing virtual therapy because that's how I, I have to make my living right now. And I also am passionate about doing that and love my clients and love doing therapy, but it's exhausting to do that. And then also have to be like, oh, and then to connect with any of my friends or my family, I also have to do a video message with them or do a video chat. And when you've been impacted by image-based abuse, you know, when your images are taken without your consent, being on camera is incredibly triggering. Like, it's not just exhausting. Like people keep talking about like fatigue of being on camera, being on Zoom meetings. But when you have experienced online violence, it's not just fatigue, it's legit post-traumatic stress disorder. I right. mean, the pings and the alerts that we get 
from you know the constant news cycle or from your alerts being like your friends are calling you or your friends are texting you blah 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 like those actually can create messages that send to our central nervous system that are telling us that we're in danger and so a ping and an alert from technology actually causes the fight flight or freeze response which is your wow. threat response when you're being faced with that because for those of us that have gone through this technology is a threat and when you've been faced with death threats or had sexual images of yourself put out there these actual alerts make you think that you're at risk of danger because you actually are and as my story illustrates abuse and violence doesn't just stay on the internet it always extends off of it and so we're actually our brains are telling us we're at risk because it's trying to protect us and many times we actually are still at risk and so being and living in quarantine is even harder for those that have been impacted by digital abuse because we cannot escape the method of violence that was used to abuse us. Right, right. So I know we're going to get into um, more ways and ways to protect ourselves um, yeah. from online assault and whatnot. But what can you say to some of the women out there, um, just you know, to kind of close for the day, if they have sure. been impacted and they do have PTSD in these times when, you know, their boss is saying, okay, yeah, we're all going to be on a Zoom call and. Um, yeah, and, and it's happening. Like all my like my clients and my friends and my community that have gone through this, like everyone's coming back to me and being like, it's so triggering. And my boss is doing just that. Like I have a PSA where I'm just like, everyone needs to be practicing camera consent, number one. Um, but for survival, you know, and that's something that we can get into on the next on the next one is my uh, is my PSA about camera consent because we really need to be looking at consent culture as we're moving online. And the biggest way to do that is to be establishing safety about people's images and about people's voices. And so we shouldn't just be assuming that people feel comfortable with being on camera because many people don't feel comfortable being on camera and that camera is actually weaponized against us. Um, but I will say to those that have been have experienced this is that A, it's not your fault. Right. It never is. Abuse is never someone's fault. And the way that abusers operate is they make us think that we deserved it. And so no matter what, like it's not our fault. And especially when we've been impacted with like image-based abuse, which is like non-consensual photography or revenge porn, right? The greater society is telling us that it's our fault. Like, oh, well, if you didn't take a naked picture, then, then it wouldn't be online. But that's all victim blaming rhetoric. And all of us are like as women and as feminized people and whoever we are with whoever our identities are, like we're allowed to exist in the virtual space, just like we're allowed to exist in the physical space. And so any abuse that you're experiencing online or off is not your fault. And all because you want to, you know, express your full self online just should not mean that you're being open up to those to hurt you, but you're being opened up by those that want to hurt you. Right, right, exactly. Okay, that is a great place for us to stop this week. And we'll be back next week with Francesca's tips on how to protect yourself and your business while needing to operate online. That's it for us this week. Remember, you can find anything we referenced in the episode in our show notes on our website, bossybrilliantbadass.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. It helps us get found. And thank you for listening. There'll be more Bossy, Brilliant, and Badass next week. So until then, be, be a, a badass. badass.